point of the church? Do you ever think about that? I hope you do. What's the point of the church? There's, there's a lot of effort goes into the church. Just think, how many hours today will have gone into people spending time in churches across the UK? You know, if you added up the total number of hours spent by the total number of people, wow, think of if all those hours were put into charity work instead. Be a lot of charity work done. Would that be a better use of the time? Was it worth all those hours being put into church? How many pounds are given each year to churches across the world? It must be billions and billions. Think of what else that could be spent on. What's the point of it being spent on the church? How much effort is put in by all the people who lead and serve and volunteer and support? It's a lot of effort. What's the point of it all? What's, what's it for? What's this thing we call the church for? Well, there's an answer, or at least a large part of the answer, in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It's not the whole answer, but it's a very large part of the answer. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. What's the point of the church? Well, at least a large part of it is this, to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. The world needs Jesus and his gospel. So how does the world in 2019 have the gospel of Jesus? Jesus was a long time ago. How does the world now get his gospel? Well, by the church being the foundation of the truth. That means protecting it, defending it, passing it on to future generations. So it's passed down through 2,000 years to us. The foundation of the truth. The world needs Jesus and his gospel, so how does the world get to hear the truth about Jesus? Well, by the church being the pillar of the truth, displaying the truth clearly, making it known clearly, making Jesus known, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And Paul says in those verses we've just read, he's writing this letter for that purpose, so the church will behave properly as the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so, chapter 4 is part of that. Chapter 4, which we've got onto this evening, is giving us some more of the things involved in the church being the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, as the name of the letter implies, it's written to Timothy, and it's written to him as the church leader, so it's firstly about him. But we've seen in previous weeks that Paul knew that other people would be reading. He expected them to read. He addresses other people in this letter because the whole church is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so the whole church needs to understand both what their leader should do, but what they as a whole church should do. So I want us to see three things from chapter 4. Three things that are here involved in being the pillar and foundation of the truth. We're going to have to do a bit of jumping around the chapter because those three things don't come in neat paragraphs because 1 Timothy 4 is not a sermon outline, it's a letter. So we'll have to jump around a bit. But I hope that by the end you will agree these three things are definitely here in chapter 4. The first is this, warn. The church needs to warn. 
Warn about the dangers of false teaching. You'll find this in verses 1 to 5 and verse 7, mainly. Now, those who don't like anything negative, those who say, oh, we've all just got different ways of looking at the truth, will not like these verses. Because these verses say there is false teaching that has these characteristics. Let's go through the characteristics. First of all, it comes from evil spiritual powers. Verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, you can't get very far in the Bible without discovering there are spiritual powers that are anti-God. If we don't believe in that, we've chucked out a lot of the Bible. We've got to take them seriously. They want to corrupt his gospel and stop the church being the pillar and foundation of the truth. This false teaching has that characteristic first. It comes from evil spiritual powers. But next, it comes through hypocritical liars. Verse 2. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars. Now, not everyone who teaches wrong things is a hypocritical liar. Some people are well-meaning but just got it wrong. They're not all hypocritical liars. Some people just get things wrong, but sadly there are also hypocrites. And sadly, the history of the church has had a lot of them in it. People who've got influence in the church, but their aim isn't to point to Jesus. Their aim is to make money for themselves or point to themselves or get power. How can they speak pious-sounding words They make them sound like a good teacher of Jesus, but actually they're in it for themselves. And they're teaching what's false. How can they do such a thing? Verse 2 tells us, Whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron? Their conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. Now, I don't know anything about farming. I presume they don't do this anymore. Actually, I suppose I know they don't, because you look at sheep in the field, they have numbers painted on them, don't they, or letters painted on them. But in the past, animals would be branded with a hot iron to mark them out. But the point of it here is it would make their skin dead and unfeeling where they'd been branded. And so these people's consciences are unfeeling. And so they will teach what's false, knowing full well what they're doing. What's the result of these false teachers? Back to verse 1. Some will abandon the faith and follow these false teachers. Some people are influenced by them and abandon the faith. Abandon the faith. What are the implications of abandoning the faith? I love the Heidelberg Catechism. Do you know what a catechism is? Set of questions and answers about the faith. And there's one that came from a town in, is it Germany? Called Heidelberg. Thank you, it's in Germany. And question one says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And it says, that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. But our verse says, because of false teaching, some people leave our faithful saviour, Jesus Christ the only comfort and the only safety in life and in death. What's going to happen to them if they leave him? We're being told teaching that is wrong about Jesus, the gospel and Christian living is serious. It's not just a minor disagreement. It's not just, oh, well, let's agree to differ. We've got some things that we differ about. It's serious business. 
In World War II, people had to have blackout curtains. I don't know if there's anyone here old enough to remember this. I don't know. Yes, okay, some of you are. Okay. And blackout curtains. And so no light shone through, so the bombers couldn't find where to bomb. And there were these people called ARP wardens. I think that's Air Raid Precautions wardens. Yes, good, you're all agreeing with me this evening. And they would go round to check all was okay. And if they would see a chink of light showing through, they'd say, get that light out, don't you know there's a war on? Don't you know there's a war on? Now we as a church need that. Don't you know there's a war on? There are spiritual powers that are anti-God and they want the gospel to be spoiled because they know that if people abandon the faith, they are ruined. Now, it's right for us to not like being negative. I hope you don't like being negative. I know some people seem to really like being negative. I hope you're not one of them. It's right for us to not like being negative, but sometimes it is necessary to be negative. There's a war on. We need to warn people. Let's find out some more about these false teachers. Let's move on to verse 3. What are these false teachers like? Verse 3, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Were you expecting that? Well, I suppose so. We read it five minutes ago. But it's, it's rather different from today. Because our danger today is people saying, well, just love Jesus and then do as you please. Oh, we can't make definite rules, don't do that, that's legalistic. It's just a matter of are your heart and your motives right. That's the sort of danger we face today. And that is wrong, that sort of attitude. But we shouldn't react to it by swinging to the opposite wrong. We've always got to be aware there's an opposite wrong we mustn't swing to. You know, some people are doing this. They are seeing evangelical churches tend to be woolly and vague. Oh, look, the Roman Catholic Church looks very definite and strict with its rules about priests must not marry and don't use contraception and so on. Yeah, we'll we'll leave those vague, woolly people because here's something more definite. But you can go from one wrong to an opposite wrong. And this verse reminds us there there is another danger, making up lots of rules to add to God's law. Seeming impressive by strictness, but it's not a strictness that comes from God. And so verses 3 to 5 remind us, now these people are wrong because God has given us so many good things to enjoy. He's a good God and he's not anti-enjoyment. He's stacked this world with things to enjoy. Have you seen astronauts' food? Have you ever seen astronauts' food? Tubes and pills and packets of things that are nutritious and exactly what they need, but, oh, it really looks dull. Yeah, I don't think they sell it in the supermarkets. No one would want to buy it, would they? And God could have made the world like that to have exactly what we need, but just what we need. But he's done so much more. He's given us oranges and cocoa beans and mangoes and honeysuckle and roses and marriage and family and sunsets and rainbows and art and literature and all sorts of things that we, you know, you could manage without them. But he's a God who is good and he even cares about our enjoyment. He is good and everything he's given is good, including his law. So don't ignore it, which is the current tendency, and don't add to it, which was the tendency here in chapter 4. 
So here, Timothy is told, warn against false teaching. For the church to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, we must warn against false teaching. But then secondly, we must teach positively. Teach the better way of truth. This is in verses 7 and 9 to 10 and 13 to 14. I told you it would be dotted around the chapter. Now, if you were going to travel to certain countries, you might see a nurse at the GP surgery for some health um, advice and help before you get going. And the nurse is likely to warn you what to avoid, what to be careful about so you don't get ill. They warn you. Don't drink certain water, don't eat those foods, don't do this, don't do the other. But they don't just warn you. They also vaccinate you so you're guarded against illnesses. And the church must do both. It must warn you that false teaching will harm you, keep away from it. But not just warn you, the church must also vaccinate you. How on earth does a church vaccinate you? Well, by this, by teaching you the truth, And getting you to so appreciate it that you don't want anything different. That's actually better than any warning. We do need the warnings, but better than warnings is this. To see the truth about Jesus and so appreciate it, appreciate him, that you say, why would I want that? I'm keeping clear of that. False teaching. Now, here in this chapter, we're told three things about this positive teaching. Well, we're probably told more, but I'm going to point out three things to you about this positive teaching. The first is, its aim is godliness. Verse 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. The false teaching doesn't produce anything useful, but the church is to teach with the aim of producing godliness. What is godliness? It's reverence for God. It's fearing God. It's being devoted to God. An ungodly person might believe in God. There are plenty of ungodly people who believe there is a God. But even if they do, he's on the edge of their life. He's there at a distance. But a godly person is someone who's continually working at God being at the centre of their life. That's what a godly person is. Continually working, God being at the centre of every aspect of life. How can I make sure God is at the centre of my way I do my work? How can I make sure that God is at the centre of how I use my money? How can I make sure that God is at the centre of how I do my jobs around the home? Of my family life? of what I read, of what I watch? How can I make sure God is at the centre of every one of these aspects of my life? That's godliness. Now, this word godliness appears nine times in 1 Timothy. It's an important concept in this letter because the church isn't the pillar of the truth by just getting conversions. Its aim isn't just getting conversions, its aim is getting people godly. It's not, okay, they've made a profession of faith, job done, as long as they keep turning up, we're okay, let's get some more people in. Now the aim is to get people godly. That's the first thing about this positive teaching. Here's the second thing, its focus is on God the Saviour. Verse 9 and 10. 
Verse 9, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance and for this we labour and strive that we have put our hope in the living God who is the saviour of all men and especially of those who believe. Paul says he's happy to labour and strive. He will toil and be diligent. Why? Because he's got firm hope in God. And he's got firm hope in God as not just a theory or an idea he could win an argument about or even just a historical fact about what happened at the cross. He's got firm hope in, in him as living now. He's alive now. He's at work now. And he's saving people now. And that's what we're told in verse 10. He's saving people now. Now, verse 10 is very difficult. It's very difficult to work out exactly what is meant by God who is the saviour of all men and especially of those who believe. <laughs> I was looking forward to finding out because Seth has, has purchased for us, well, I suppose for himself, but I'm using it, a brilliant copy on 1 Timothy. So I thought, what will it say on this verse? And he lists five things that people say about it and doesn't tell you which one he thinks is right. Because it's really hard to work out. It can be that especially, this word especially here can mean namely. We'd probably put in I.E. So it could be that. God's the saviour of all sorts of people, i.e. those who believe. It could be that, but it's not clear. It's very difficult to work it out. But I think we can be clear what the general thrust is. We can be clear what it's getting at. Especially when we remember that Paul has already written in chapter 2 about God desiring all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And it's this. The false teachers back then, they wanted to limit salvation to a certain race, usually the Jews, or a certain class of people, or people who had access to secret teachings. And this verse says, no, no, God is nothing like that. God doesn't limit his salvation. It's to be offered freely to all without exception. Because God is the saviour of all sorts of people and he desires all sinners everywhere to turn to him and be saved. That's the positive teaching that Timothy and we must put the emphasis on. Now remember the heading, we're looking at three things about this positive teaching. Here's the third one, we've had, its aim is godliness, Secondly, its focus is God the Saviour. And thirdly, it's done by, well, there's a whole load of things in this chapter it's done by. How is it done? Well, verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. It's done by putting the focus on Christ Jesus. It's interesting he says, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, and then chapter 4 never mentions Christ Jesus again, because... Well, it's going on to tell us what it means to be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Jesus isn't mentioned later in the chapter, but in a sense he doesn't need to be. Because Paul has already made it clear, everything relies on Jesus. You can't get godliness without Jesus. God wouldn't be the saviour without Jesus. It's all about Jesus. How do we teach about Jesus? How is this positive teaching to be done? Well, let's make sure you're awake. You you have a look in verse 11 and 13 and 14. And let's hear from you. What are some of the things Timothy has got to do? Verse 11, 
We're skipping verse 12 for the minute and verse 13 and 14. What are some of the things we've got to do to do this positive teaching? Just say some of the words you see there. Command, Command. good. Teach. Teach. On to verse 13. Public reading of the scripture. Preach. Preach. Teach again. So that's important. It's come up a second time. What's verse 14? Use your gifts. Thank you. Use your gifts given by the Spirit. For the church to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, Timothy's got to devote himself to these things. Now, there was no point Timothy devoting himself to these things in an empty room. So can you see the implication? If, if Timothy needs to devote himself to these things, it means we all need to be commanded, to be taught, to be preached to, to turn up and listen when the Bible is read. That's interesting, that one, isn't it? Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Do you switch off when it's the Bible reading? Switch off when it's the Bible reading, just washes over you. God has put in the Bible, the Bible should be read at church and we should be devoted to it, listening attentively. To be the pillar and foundation of the truth, the church needs to be positively teaching. So we appreciate that truth, so we appreciate Jesus. And then here's a third thing, we've had warn, we've had teach, and then thirdly we have live. Live to commend the truth. This is in verses 7 to 10 and verse 12 and verse 15. This is written to Timothy telling him how to live. But do remember it's written for the whole church to read because the whole church is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. So it's got to live in a way that commends the truth to others. A person who went knocking on doors to tell people the gospel, he said... Most people don't want to know. The vast majority, he found, don't want to know. He said there are a few who are hostile and angry, and it usually turns out they've been badly treated by someone who called themselves a Christian. He said a few are friendly and sympathetic and very warm, and it usually turns out they've been treated well by a Christian. So how should we live to be the pillar of the truth? Well, I've said it's in verses 7 to 10 and 12 and 15. There's a lot there in those verses, so I'm just going to pick one of them. Have a look at verse 12 and 15 in your own time. I'm going to pick verse 7 and 8. 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Do you remember what godliness means? I hope so. It was only a few minutes ago that I said it means reverence for God, devotion to God. And it says here, train yourself to be godly. It's... It's the word from which we get our word gymnasium. In other words, it it does actually mean physical training, like an athlete does, like a sports person does. Now, what is an athlete's training like? I think we've all got a vague idea, haven't we? That it's motivated and it's disciplined and it's methodical and it involves putting in effort. And God says that should be your approach to godliness. 
to working at God being at the centre of every aspect of your life, it takes methodical, disciplined, motivated effort to make sure God's at the centre of how you approach work and money and family and leisure and attitudes. Now I wonder, do you think of the Christian life like that? Something that requires the sort of effort an athlete puts into training. Now admittedly, this is said to Timothy, and it's said to Timothy in his role as what is called here a man of God, a leader of the church. But it's not going to be, Timothy, you've got to train at godliness, while everyone else, it just happens just like your fingernails growing, automatically, almost without noticing. Now, it is telling us, all of us, if we're going to be godly, it's going to take effort. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take work. Is it worth it? Verse 8. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. When I was a student, I tried some competitive rowing. I wasn't very good at it. I'm not big enough. But at the regattas, they used to look at me, well, you're obviously not a cox, you're not small enough, but you don't look like a rower because you're not big enough. (laughs) I wasn't that good, but I was motivated and I was keen and I did train very hard. And I remember thinking, even if I became as good as Steve Redgrave or Matthew Pinson, by the way, I I wasn't under any illusion I would become as good as them. I wasn't that deluded. I remember thinking, even if I did... What good would that do? What good would it do? I suspect there are some younger people here who don't even know who Redgrave and Pinsent are. Yeah? What difference does it make that 20-something years ago they won a whole load of gold medals in rowing? Yeah, it's forgotten by most people, isn't it? And not even known by some of you. What difference does it make? Very little. But at the same time as I was rowing, well, not exactly the same time, at the same stage of life as I was rowing, I was also reading a book about a man called Robert Murray McShane. He was a Christian leader in Scotland. He was also a bit of a physical wreck. He died in his 20s. That isn't very desirable. But he was godly. What a difference he made. What a difference he made in others' lives and for God's glory, and now he's receiving his reward in heaven, and even today his life is making a difference to people as they read about that godly man. Now, none of us are going to be Redgrave or Pinsent, I presume, looking round. I don't know, maybe some of you are amazing sports people, but I doubt any of us are going to be like Redgrave and Pinsent and get their number of gold medals. But we could, by the work of the Holy Spirit, be like Robert Murray McShane, We could, by the Spirit's work, I hope you believe that. So have you got your priorities right? Do you work at godliness, at having God at the centre of every aspect of your life? It's worth it. It's far more worth it than many of the things we put such a lot of effort into. Now, we've rushed over quite a lot of things and we've missed out quite a lot of things in chapter 4. But... We're going to end with this. Does it matter? Does it matter if the church is a pillar that's crumbling or a foundation that's too shallow? Does that matter? Does it matter if people teach things that misrepresent the gospel and we just turn a blind eye because it's not nice being negative and thought to be too narrow? 
Does it matter if people don't get much teaching because they only turn up once a week here and spend that time in the creche or the children's meeting? Does it matter if we don't work hard at being godly because we're too busy doing other things? Does it matter? Verse 16. Let's end where the chapter ends. Verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The chapter ends by saying, this matters. It matters. Well, how, come, how can Paul say you can save yourself? Those who were here a couple of weeks ago might remember this. We came to this verse sort of ahead of time. Uh, and it's meaning this. Do you remember Philippians 2? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you. Because salvation is about making us like Jesus. And that is a work in progress. It isn't yet complete for any of us. And that's why even Timothy is told, work at this, persevere in this, be careful at this. Because you've still got further to go in being made like Christ. It matters because for all of us, salvation isn't yet complete. If you're in Christ, it's secure, but it's not yet complete. There's further to go in being made like Christ. It matters because he's got to save other people as well, those who listen to him. It matters because there are people who need us to bring them the gospel, to pull them off the road leading to destruction and to keep them on the road leading to life eternal. And so we must warn and we must teach and we must live in a way that commends the gospel because we have got serious business, the business of being saved and saving others, the business of becoming like Jesus and making others like Jesus, all for the honour of Jesus. So let's pray for that now.